0: On today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to be spending time in Acts chapter 7. We're going to listen to Stephen as he shares with us a Bible history lesson with a particular point emphasizing on rebellion. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for another time period where we seek to factor the truth of God's word into your daily life and hopefully into our daily lives as well. This is our ultimate goal. We've often talked about uh, why we do this study and we like to do the study because it helps to benefit us. Preachers sitting down, studying together, um, and and going through the Word of God. But we we like to stream it live because then maybe you might find it beneficial. And if you're willing to participate, you can help us out with the study. Paul, if you would take a moment and let them know what they can do at home to participate in today's discussion. We are excited to be able to offer several ways in which you can participate in this Bible study.
1: Uh, We'd love for you to watch us on YouTube. Uh, You can look on Facebook and see us in a live video there as well. And uh, even on our uh, website, which is truthfactor.com, and look for the live viewing page. And, uh, of course, you can connect with us on Twitter. Uh, And any of those uh, social media, just look for uh, or search for Truth Factor Live. And we'd love for you to subscribe uh, or follow us and subscribe. That's helpful to us. And uh, we would also uh, love to hear from you uh, either in your comments during the course of our study or if you send us a, an email that will go to all of us, which is questions at truthfactor.com or any of our first names if you want to address us individually, like Paul or Tom or John or Brian or Mike or Shelton at truthfactor.com. And so we'll look forward to your interaction in our study today as we look at Stephen. And if you make a comment, we'll promise not to stone you for whatever you say.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you, Paul. Um, We have, I need y'all to do me a favor. See if you can go to truthfactor.com.
2: I am there. I had a problem early on, but then okay. it came back up. It's uh, now resolved. Early okay. on, it wouldn't access. I'm on. I'm actually watching it live right now.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Darren, During Paul's um Paul's portion there, I checked on it and I got worried real quick because it wasn't coming up, but it is there now. Uh, must have been a a hitch. Speaking of stone, and I have to find who we need a stone for that glitch today. All right. So where we're at this morning in our study through Acts is chapter seven, Acts chapter seven. And Acts chapter seven, the way that it is broken up, we have Stephen, he has been brought before the the council. And um, in the course, you know, they're, they've made charges against him. And in a minute, we're going to see the way chapter seven begins when um after the accusations are made against Stephen regarding him speaking blasphemous words um, against the holy place and against the law and so forth the high priests are going to say are these things so and this opens up an opportunity for Stephen to give a defense for those for the hope that lies within him if you would as Peter says he's able here to now explain why he believes what he does and initially, when we look at Acts chapter seven, it might come across as just a very simple history lesson, but I've often found it quite perplexing, or well not perplexing, a very learning, a learned opportunity or an opportunity to learn when you look at how the apostles viewed the Old Testament history. Um, here is Stephen, and I know he's speaking through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but here is someone in the first century talking about the things that we study about when we study through the Old Testament. Peter did the same thing, and Paul will do the same thing as well, and these help us to better understand. So in a minute, Stephen's going to go all the way back to Abraham, to the the very person whom God made the initial promise to, the very one that the, the Jews claimed to be their father. And he's going to start with that point, and ultimately he's going to culminate into how Israel rebelled against God and, and killed the prophets of God. And then he brings it around to what the current generation had done to Jesus. So while it may seem like a history lesson, set back for a moment and listen to Stephen. As, he, as, as we mentioned earlier in our pre-show discussion, this very well could be a very simple scheme of redemption story as spoken by Peter. And so we're going to look at that here. And I tell you what, let's go ahead and we're going to read the first 16 verses here. And Shelton, I'm going to ask you if you would, sir, to go ahead and read those verses for us there. We're going to start in, let me turn that off. We're going to start there in chapter one, chapter seven, verse one, and read down through verse 16, if you would.
3: Absolutely. <clears throat> Says, so and the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of, of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt he sent out our fathers first and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the pharaoh then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob all his relatives to him 75 people so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died he and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb where that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hammer, the father of Shechem.
0: All right. Thank you, uh, Shelton. All right. I've got a, cu- a couple of um, thoughts that I want to look at as we go through here. And let me, I'm going to give you a chat room question. And Brian, I will have you to paste that in once I give it to you. <laughs> But considering the statement in verse 5, I've often found this interesting. What did Stephen mean when he said, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on? So think about verse 5, and what did God mean when he said that he gave Abraham no inheritance in it? When I I was reading through this uh, last night kind of of in a – Preparing for this, I found that statement very interesting, and so we'll try not to discuss it amongst us until we get to the uh the end of the question or the section. So that is going to be our chat room question. But for that being the case, though, let's go ahead and back up there to verse one here for just a moment. Now, as we mentioned a while ago, this is just Stephen giving, or it seems to be Stephen just giving a straight history lesson. Um, but Shelton, let me ask you this question. Does it seem rather interesting that he would begin with Abraham? Why, why go all the way back to Abraham to ultimately talk about or to make the accusation he will ultimately make?
3: Oh, well, it's, it's very interesting about the, uh, the lineage of Christ, I believe is, is what we're, we're going to see here as the chapter goes on. But, uh, in, in that lineage of Christ, and with Abraham being the start of that, uh, it's kind of one of those things that that, that I've heard the, the expression, the best place to start is from the beginning. And uh, through that lineage, that's exactly what Stephen is doing. I, I believe that's the reason why he, he goes to Abraham first.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Because um, when you stop and you give consideration to the ultimate message that is being given, it's hard to give half the message unless you're going to go back to the beginning of the message. Um, and Abraham was the, the promised one that God had eventually uh, ultimately began with there. And uh, and, uh,
3: and I also think it's, yeah. uh, don't mean to interrupt John, but I, I think it's also evident that uh, with him starting with Abraham there, it, it's very important to understand the context of this passage. If, if uh, any of the people watching this today weren't here for last week, Understanding who Stephen is talking to, uh, and, and it's a good lesson for us. We need to understand who he is talking to and why he goes back to these things to deal specifically with these people. And today, when we talk about uh, or when we talk to different people, we're, we're going to talk to them different ways based on what their background is. Uh, when we study with them, if you know what what background of religion they're they're from, or if they don't have any, we're going to talk to them different ways because of that. And so, it's also important to understand the reason why he's going into all this
0: also has to do with his audience. Okay. it's a good point. Good point. Tom, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, back in
2: Genesis chapter three and verse 15, after the fall of man, we have the promise of, of the seed of uh, the seed of a woman crushing the head of the serpent and so on. Up through that point, Uh, this basically is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. So, so that's what you have with Abraham is the beginning of the fulfillment of a promise. There was the promise in the garden, but this is kind of where it starts.
0: Okay. Well, we also find when we look at this, Tom, that it is God, God is, is leading Abraham. Think about the picture for just a moment the nation of Israel or the land of Canaan was ultimately going to be the promised land, the land of Israel. And it's the land that God had given to them for them to take care of. He had blessed them with it. Um, whenever they would serve him, they would, they would, um, they would abound plentifully and so forth. But this all begins with Abraham and God taking him to the land and then promising the land to him and his descendants there. Um, but now when we continue a little bit farther here with this one, let me bring this um, back up here beside me. And wrong one, apologize. My multitasking skills are lacking a little bit this morning. Like I said, we're gonna come back to the question regarding verse five in just a moment. But as we continue looking down through here, and he talks about his descendants would dwell in the foreign land that they would uh, bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Uh, Brian, do you have any thoughts that might pertain to that particular statement about his descendants going to another land and being there for about 400 years?
4: You know, and that is a great question. Of course, we we can identify this as Israel being taken to Egypt. And uh, um, I kind of almost would think of the idea of Israel is oftentimes personified as a child or as the son. And Egypt is this place where they're gestated and then they're their delivery and birth comes through Moses, and as you know, like a like the one who delivers the child, and they pass through the sea as though it's uh, passing into their birth. So images like that kind of give us a sense of their four hundred years, uh, or this time frame, I should say that they're that we're meant to understand as the time frame of their preparation for this.
0: Okay, I've heard people say, and I think I agree with this thought, Brian, that the four hundred year period. Isn't the amount of time that they were technically in Egypt itself, but from the right. time that Abraham went to the land of Canaan to the time that they came out of Egypt. And and the
4: reason we we oftentimes say that is that we have some other numbers in the Bible too, and and a lot of times um, a lot of times the way that people count in the Bible isn't the way we think of counting. And in fact, I think a lot of times if we think of the way we count something. And we try to apply that to the Bible. We're gonna we're gonna run into a lot of times where it's, it's not gonna make sense to us. So uh, I'm trying to remember: is it Galatians where Paul talks about uh, you know a distinction between Moses and and Abraham being about 400 years as well? So that kind of helps us to understand exactly what you're saying,
0: right? And and it also looks back. There's a statement in the first part of Exodus where um, in kind of reviewing the history there, the the writer of Exodus. In most of the like the King James and new king james um the regular translations I think the Hebrew says, and they were in um the the land of Egypt for four hundred four hundred years roughly, but it's the Septuagint that renders it they were in Canaan and Egypt for that time frame, and that's the passage that I think it is that paul is 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 he doesn't quote from it, but he's referencing it that they were in Canaan and Egypt for the time period. And sure enough, when you look at the genealogies starting um, with, um, let's see, the descendants of Levi, all right, you got right, you've got Levi and his son and his son, and then Amram, who's the father yeah. of Moses. And there's not enough time from Levi to Moses to be 400 years based on their ages and everything. But if you back it up to counting when Levi was born in the land of Canaan, then you bring it down. Then it fits that time frame a little bit better there. Yeah. it uh, uh, and, and again, like I said, a lot of times the we just...
4: We just really struggle to understand. You know, Paul talks about the years that he was in Arabia. That we struggle to understand what yeah. he means by that, or even three days and three nights in the grave is kind of a, a brings up some questions to people. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times our mistake is that that uh, numbers haven't always been used the same way. In fact, one of the confusing things is the number zero itself didn't appear. Until you know, uh, well after a lot of the calculations that the Bible speaks of, so mm-hmm. so we have to understand that the way they calculate and put numbers together is a little different than the way we do. And uh, you know, while we think, well, well, numbers don't change, they actually do. The the way you count is a little bit based on the way
0: you your culture thinks of how numbers work. That's a good point. In some cultures, um, you're one years old from the day of your birth to one year later, and then you're two. That'd be a
4: great point, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you
4: know, in fact, we, in, fact, in, in fact, you get a lot of people arguing as to when did the millennium change, in the year 1999 you know. to 2000 or 2000 2001? And, and frankly, I think half the people we know would probably guess wrong on what the official uh, statement to that is.
0: So. Yeah, a friend of mine who who is in East, Eastern Orthodox religion, when back when I turned 48, was nice enough to remind me that I actually was starting my 59th year of life. you're you're 59th or 49 59 oh that's even worse 49 (laughs) back then back then a few years ago um okay so let me let's see paul let me ask you this question look there at verse 8 for just a moment do you see anything particular there in verse 8 that really kind of helps that that for for the audience, and this goes back to what was mentioned earlier about the audience he was talking to. I think Tom mentioned that. Is there anything you see in verse eight there that that should really catch their attention, um, in his discussion? If that makes sense.
1: Uh, in the discussion, uh, I'm the not system. sure exactly
0: what you're looking for. I was thinking as
1: I read the verse that the. A history of the people that, you know, here, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, uh, the 12, he calls them there, the 12 patriarchs. Uh, the covenant of circumcision certainly uh, was significant of that. Uh, are you, uh, I was watching your cursor move around, John, to see if maybe you were circling something that should get my attention. <laughs> well, I, I was
0: trying to, but you said it, though. The, circum- okay. the covenant of circumcision.
1: Yeah, they, they, they were in, they had that yeah. covenant that they kept in, in yeah. the Old Testament, certainly. Um, you know, I, I just not to, not to go away from your question, but I find it very interesting that as I look at this, that they ask him a, a pretty straightforward question. Is this true? And he gives them a great history lesson. And can you imagine talking to these, uh, very, experienced, uh, trained teachers of the law, and that they're being told some of the fundamental history, uh, that Stephen, uh, would, would highlight and would bring to their attention like the covenant of circumcision, John.
0: Paul, that's a very good point. Um, here they are, they're the trained ones and he's giving them a history lesson. You know, that's, <laughs> it'd be like your, 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 uh, your, uh, doctor history doctor of history at college saying, answer yourself. And you talk to him. Well, let me tell you about Abraham Lincoln and what he went through. Yeah. Uh, Brian, do you have a thought on it?
4: You know, what Paul said is kind of interesting and important. Um, If we step back for a second and consider this chapter in context, Stephen has been accused of going back to chapter 6 and verse 13, uh, speaking against the holy place in the law, and attempting to destroy and alter the customs of Moses. So actually, his defense is really pretty remarkable in the sense that the very question you just asked, and, and Paul was pointing to uh, things like circumcision, the Passover, that that's what it means by the the customs and the traditions of Moses. Those are the things that we're really speaking about there. And uh, that being the case, the uh, these customs, these traditions, by by restating them back to the to to the very people that are in their own minds at least, entrusted to guard them. He's proving that he's not guilty of trying to uh, destroy these customs because, because he quotes, in fact, he quotes the scriptures 13 times, and they're remarkable quotes. I Frankly, if I were put on the spot, to to quote that thoroughly and that consistently in, in this order of things reveals that, that he certainly is not somebody who dishonors the law. Indeed, by committing it to memory, he has a great deal of knowledge of the law. So I think it's just important to consider that all of this kind of weighs into the idea of, of what he's been accused of, which is dishonoring Moses and trying to change the customs. And he's actually quoting back to them the customs. And, and I, and I again, I don't want to step on where you're going with this, but to say that one of the things to consider about the customs of Israel is that they always haven't been what's pleasing to God. And that, that's, I think, probably where you're headed. And I don't want to go too far into that.
0: No, I thought I thought that was a very good point that you made there. Um, because he, because I, I had I had overlooked that. If you go back to look at what they are accusing him of, he is showing just the complete reverse of that accusation there, um, and his respect for it. That's a good point. Good point. Appreciate both those both those comments there. All right, let's see. Any other thoughts? We're going to, let's go ahead and do the chat room question because it resides in verse five here. So I'm going to throw that back up and we do have one individual who commented on the question. Question was, what did Stephen mean in verse five when he said God gave Abraham no inheritance in the land? Oftentimes when we talk about this particular part of Bible history, we oftentimes go to the fact that God said, told to Abraham, I'll give this land to you and to your descendants, and so forth, and so on. But Stephen says that God did not, that God gave Abraham no inheritance, inheritance in the land. And so Gregory, in answer to the question, he says, um, Abraham is given a future promise, just like our future promise of heaven. So Abraham, though blessed, had no permanent possession in his life. And Stephen, I think, or Gregor, I'm sorry, Gregor, I think that's a very, very excellent point. And it's a good comparison. Abraham, although God promised it to Abraham and his descendants, it would not be until 400 years later that when they came back from the Egyptian bondage, that they would then be given the opportunity, add 40 years to it, of course, to finally be able to take the land and fulfill that inheritance promise. So I appreciate that appreciate that all right so let's look at the just real quick here the latter half of it tom let me throw this question to you there in verse nine do you think that there's any particular reason that stephen uses the term and the patriarchs became envious uh
2: i just think that he's pointing it toward uh um uh, what the Jews were doing to what they did to Jesus and what they were about to do to Stephen. Yeah. And he's just given an illustration. I mean, here's Joseph, a dreamer of dreams and he Mm -hmm. told them some things they didn't want to hear. And so they just, uh, they, uh, if you, if you can't, if you can't refute the charge, you get rid of the one making the charge. And, and uh, I think that's where Stephen's headed.
0: Well, what a, and I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that's a very good, very good point. But what I'm wondering here is if maybe, you know, he very well could have said, and Joseph's brothers being envious, but he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, and you think about this for a moment. You've got the, um, you got all the sons of Jacob. You got 12 sons of Jacob there and you got the daughter. All of the sons, with the exception of Joseph, and technically Levi, but set Joseph aside, was given an actual land of promise. Joseph was not given any land. Now his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they were given portions of land. But there's no tribe of Joseph that we see within the scriptures. And, and I wonder if maybe there's a point that Stephen is making when he says, and the patriarchs being envious. It could be a simple reference and, and nothing more meant by that. But he says the patriarchs being envious. In other words, and he'll go back later, He saying, your fathers, your fathers. Joseph wasn't your father, unless you're from Manasseh or Ephraim. But your fathers are the one that became envious at this. Uh, yeah, and, right. and, of course, okay. mm-hmm. uh, ahead, uh,
2: typically associated with the term patriarch would be leaders.
0: Leaders or, or fathers? Yeah yeah, more leaders, yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah the, the the leaders and so on and and that's typically what you had the fathers yeah so
0: yeah so right. uh, and
2: and and again that's what you have as Stephen is making this charge in against against yeah. the, those who uh crucified jesus the leaders did it
0: that's right that's right um brian do you have a thought
4: you know, what's neat about this, and Tom, uh, Tom and you both kind of alluded to it, is that what we have with Joseph is the story of Christ. Uh, because of envy, which is what we're told directly, he is betrayed by his brethren. Uh, then into the hands of the Gentiles, he's he's degraded even further, cast down into this prison. Uh, then he's elevated up to the right hand of the ruler of all things. And so, and and ironically, that's done for the deliverance of his brethren. So the story of Joseph really is the story of Christ. And perhaps they might catch that as they kind of uh, are alluding to that. They there does seem to be a sense where a lot of the Jews and this is extra biblical so we're going to be very careful what I'm saying here that sometimes they talked about the Messiah as being almost like two men. They called him the the son of of uh, the talked about him as the son of David, which the scriptures talk about a lot, but sometimes they also called him the son of Joseph. Which kind of refers to the idea of the suffering servant. And Joseph is that suffering servant that is uh typified as Christ. So there's a strong parallel or foreshadow here of Jesus in the events of the life of Joseph.
0: Okay. It's a good thought. It's a good thought. All right. Any other thoughts or comments on this particular section that we've looked at so far? Yeah, and I'm I'm sure there's more that we could talk about, but I think that um is, we, we need to continue. Stephen's got a point that he's building up to. It's not just a history lesson. He has an actual point. So, Paul, how are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Good. I'm going to have you to read verses 17 through 36, um, where Stephen is going to be sharing or reminding them of how God delivered the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt. So we got a nice little... Uh, nice little piece of reading here. So, when at your convenience.
1: Okay. Uh, we're going to read in <clears throat> Acts 7. And John said 17 through 36. And I'm reading from the New King James. And it says there, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born, and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds, Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler And a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years.
0: All righty. Thank you, Paul. There are a couple of things here that I think, if we have the time, I'd like to discuss things that, um, I think might be considered interesting observations, but in regards to what we're going to use as the chat question, let me see if I can get my cursor up here to verse go back up to verse twenty two verse twenty two and what I'd like for the chat room to consider for just a moment is, is there a possible benefit to Moses having been schooled or trained? Um, by the Egyptians there specifically the wording is but he i'm sorry yeah 22 and moses was learned in all the wisdom of the egyptians and was mighty in words indeed would there be any significance to joe to joseph to moses being schooled by the egyptians and you know the ability to read and write and so forth is what we're going with does that make sense Brian?
3: Brian. Brian
4: realized you were yeah, sure.
3: yourself muted. <laughs>
4: no, I, I, I uh, was just finishing the question up for
0: you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully I, I had that make sense there. Um, my, my, my computer that the Bible program on is deciding to um, respond slowly. And so that's why I was responding slowly as well with that. Okay. So let's go ahead. There are a couple of um, questions, thoughts that came to mind and, um, and I got to remember, Mike has a good point about that. And we'll come back to him when we get to um, that particular question there. All right. So in this particular section, we have that uh, Stephen now jumps back to the time where God is going to fulfill the promise that he had sworn to Abraham. The people had multiplied greatly. So he goes, he shares a story with us about the development of Moses. Um, but let me ask, uh, Mike, are you able to talk?
1: He's got his uh mic muted. I
5: think so. Can you hear me now?
0: Okay. Okay. Good. I can
5: Good. Okay. now let me let me ask Good. you
0: a question here that something that struck my my in in the dispute, okay, where he sees the um um he sees the Egyptian beating his fellow Israelite. And look mm-hmm. at verse twenty five. This is something that In reading through the actual account of this in Exodus, I don't think what we're about to say has ever really jumped out in my mind as it did in Stephen's mind. All right, Stephen explains, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, what does that tell us about the faith of Moses before the burning bush?
5: Mm-hmm. Well before the burning bush Obviously he is Raised by his mother uh, During his Growing up years in Egypt um, So that For 40 years Of living in Egypt Obviously he was not only knowledgeable Of the Egyptian ways He was even more and more vital to the point Knowledgeable of Israelite ways What Strikes me, John, and I don't know what I'm, I'm satisfied. I've read this, but it's one of those things that you read and you say, "Ah, why didn't I see that before?" God hadn't spoken to him till this burning bush, apparently. Right. Um, yet he understood. Moses understood that God wanted Moses to deliver Israel. He goes forty years into Midian before he really recognizes that. Because he's running away from the Egyptians. To answer your question, then I'm going to make an assumption here. And if you've got a scripture that will prove the assumption, and that's even better. I'm going to assume that his mother who actually raised Moses was so dedicated to God as was Miriam, his sister and someplace along the line, Aaron would have possibly been involved in this Moses's brother. That they had a respect for God. And while it says that uh, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, there's a. Um,
0: Is that just Mike or is everybody else? Yeah, I think
1: it's just Mike.
0: Okay.
4: Just Mike. He Sometimes I like to point. pause a long time too when I have a good thought maybe that's
0: yeah and I, I like the freeze frame too that was that was really good yeah um, trying
4: to screen capture that <laughs>
0: well let me uh, let me continue with with kind of what mike was saying there and um we 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 have to we have to make some assumption based on Stephen's statement that somebody within moses's life told him um the message, the promise that God had made to Jacobed uh, regarding Moses, and uh, see, for, for instance, I was thinking about this as Mike was talking. Shel- you know, Shelton uh, is in our training program, and if Shelton, in telling the, uh, the the story about Moses, was to say, "Well, you know, Moses killed the Egyptians because he thought the people would understand that he was supposed to deliver them," I'd have to pull Shelton side and say, "Shelton." You know, God hadn't spoken to Moses yet. So, so we, we don't, we don't know that that's exactly what Moses was thinking. But Stephen does. You know, he says this and he is, and we, we, we understand that Stephen is speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit at this point. If he's not, I, and I, I'm incorrect upon that, I need to, I need to be corrected on it and everything. Um, but we, we, we're of the understanding that he's speaking through inspiration. And so therefore, he's revealing some information that is not quite obvious in our understanding. Moses had enough faith that God would deliver the people even before God said, I'm sending you to deliver the people. Um, any thoughts or comments about that?
3: I wish I was inspired that way, John.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It'd be handy sometimes.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. So let's continue on though with this, um, the other thing that caught my attention, and there's a couple of things I said a while ago as we were reading through here. Um, when you come down into the text, so you, have got this argument and everything, and, um, he, he steps forward and, and he, he kills the Egyptian. And then, of course, others have seen that and they bring that to his attention. And then verse 30, um, 39 there, he, he is called away. But, um, Tom, I find something impressive. About verses thirty-one through thirty-four, in regards to what Stephen is saying. Um, Looking at the text there, does it appear that Stephen is actually quoting from the biblical text? Tom.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm listening. (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah. I thought we'd had another Uh, freeze-up again.
2: Actually, you know, going back to the Genesis 3 and verse 6, or Exodus 3, 6, rather, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, I mean, he is, he's quoting from back there.
0: Okay. Well, here's here's the point I'm making with that. All right. Now, I've, I've known a lot of preachers who have uh, Bible texts memorized, uh, more than just one verse. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll quote the whole context. But again, mm-hmm. I'm impressed with Stephen. He's not simply telling the story. He's actually quoting from the text, whether by mm-hmm. inspiration or by him being studious. Think about it. He has been with the apostles probably since the beginning, as with many, everyone else that obeyed the gospel. He had been studying this with them for maybe a year, depending on who you talk to, maybe even two years. Um It's, it's just, I'm impressed by the fact that in this sermon, He's. I don't think he has his Septuagint handy It said, "Hold on a minute, let me turn over here and read the story to you." Right. That makes sense. Right.
1: Yeah, John. I was. I was noticing that too. I use a, a version of the New King James that any uh, quotes from the Old Testament are in all capital letters, and uh, noticing there a lot of what Stephen says are things that are are quotes from from that account, and but he seems very also, you know, on a I guess. The flip side of that same coin, he seems very comfortable just relating uh, the details. You know, he's familiar enough with them that while he can quote some of it uh, directly, he can just speak to uh, the the situation. And he's, the uh, word's not casual. I guess I guess comfortable is the best word I can think of uh, with, with the Bible account. And I'm not sure if he doesn't kind of fill in some things that we don't necessarily have entirely in the uh, in the old Testament account of, of these events
0: such as what Paul, that's, that's an interesting point. Do you have an example?
1: Uh, I was wondering, uh, he calls it an angel that appeared in the bush and I wasn't sure if that's what, uh, and I did not check this since, (laughs) since you asked me, uh, I was wondering if the Old Testament account called it the angel or called it the Lord. Well, um, and the old, so I think the
0: Old Testament account, he says an angel of the Lord. Okay, All right. But earlier in the text, when he's, when he's walking through this, there's a footnote in my Bible. Then when he says angel of the Lord, some, tra- some uh, readings just have angel. Which brings up the other thought, and I'm glad you said this because I, I had already forgotten it sometimes people there's an idea and I'm not saying it's wrong, but there's a thought that the angel of the Lord in the old Testament is Christ. Him, him, he was the angel of the Lord seen within the old Testament. If that's the case though, it's interesting that Stephen doesn't reveal that assuming Stephen knew that, you know, Paul talks about Christ was the rock in the wilderness and so forth. First Corinthians 10, but it's interesting that, that Stephen just says that it's, it was an angel. Um, Whatever that's worth, yeah.
1: You know, I, I, I just as I as I was reading through that, I, I was just thinking that um, that that it is just impressive to me how Stephen can, you know, he's not having to search for the words. Well, of course, you know, the the Holy Spirit uh, certainly uh, may account for a lot of that. But here he just seems so comfortable speaking of these things, and and he knows his material, he knows his audience. Uh, He knows the point that he's wanting to make, and uh, maybe there's some some good preacher lessons there. I don't know.
0: Well, I think that's a very good point. Very good point. Any other thoughts or comments on this? Yes, Tom.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm preparing to teach a class on evidences and and dealing with Scripture and dealing with the life of Jesus, and one of the questions that pops up sometimes is, how did the people of the first century... Uh, reveal the message before it was written down. Uh, it, it's commonly believed that they were illiterate, or uh, a large percentage of them were illiterate. Though I believe the Jews probably had a larger percentage of literate than some of the others. Anyways, um, uh, one of the things that they have kind of learned is that one way that people remembered things was uh, through uh, cadence and uh, you know memorization of various types of things and if you look at that phrase in verse number 32 you have a repetition there you know I am the God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob that might have been one of those things the way that it's written and the way that it was read and spoken it was designed to help people remember and so and and my point is it very well could be that what Stephen is saying here is what you would describe as one of the common phrases that the Jews had learned, you know, in understanding who God is and so on and so and, and he kind of quotes that into the context, and people could take that expression and relate it to the event where it was mentioned. Yeah. so it's kind of a a statement as a recall, you know, we sometimes talk about Uh, uh, psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me jesus uttering that statement on the cross and it brought to remembrance everything that is in that chapter anyways that's just an interesting thought uh, about what was going on back then as far as the culture and the way people taught each other
0: okay i appreciate that
1: brian Brian had a good answer to the question i know we're running short on time Uh, of course we started a little late as well but Brian had a good response to the question, uh, John, about are, are there some things that, that Stephen speaks of that we don't read about in our account in the Old Testament? And uh, Brian, would you like to share that?
4: Well, I, um, the the thing that struck me was, first of all, when he talks about Moses' education, that's actually not something stated in the Old Testament. Uh, so his being educated in the ways of the Egyptians... Uh, is, is a significant statement not found. But there's also the inference. We haven't got there yet at verse 37 when, when he's talking about the prophecy. Um, it wasn't really clear that was a prophecy until Stephen uh, reveals it identified with Jesus. So that might be considered that way as well.
0: Um, you're talking about the statement regarding... Um... I'm, I'm sorry, verse
4: 37. I should have clarified. I apologize. Uh, where he talks about Moses, God will raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. Uh, Mm -hmm. The precise meaning of that probably wasn't clear, except that, you know, it's revealed uh, through the New Testament that it's Jesus.
0: Right. I understand. Which Mm -hmm. Stephen would have been taught by the apostles at this point there at the um, temple. And, you know, I'll have to go back and look at that. I really thought, but I think you're right. Exodus doesn't really record that uh, Moses was educated by the Egyptians. That's an interesting point that Stephen brings out which goes i'm going to go ahead and bring up the question for the chat room real quick and um and the question had to do with there's a bit be- is there a benefit seen to moses being trained and 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 educated by the egyptians and gregor he sends in the following uh, statement he says the education of moses means he was accepted by the egyptians and knew their ways i find it interesting here he was mighty in word indeed later his speech is not so good according to moses himself and I think that's a very, very interesting point there. Um, there was something about Moses that, that put him in a good position there to learn, and he used that information. There is a history book, um, and I don't know how reputable it is. Uh, the, the author of the book is by a man by the name of Kelly. And um, I actually I thought I had one right here behind me. Anyway, it's an older book called "The Bible is History," and he makes an interesting point in here that um Moses being educated by the Egyptians put him in the perfect position to actually become the author that God would make him um that he he's the one that would have been trained with the ability to read and write uh the way that he did so I thought that was an interesting thought kind of what sparked the question there so. All right, let's see. What is our time now? We've got about five minutes remaining. Paul, how did I take such a simple chapter
2: That's
0: and make it have to go two weeks?
4: Blame <laughs> it on us.
0: Um, I'll do that.
4: <laughs> it's a pretty long chapter,
0: to be fair. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um
4: well- well, John, if, you, if you'll let me, uh, let me throw one more comment in. Uh, I had a couple I, I, w- I wasn't going to bring up, but let me throw another thought. You know what's neat about Moses' education as Egyptian is that Moses is the perfect concept of a mediator, that he's equal to both parties that are mediating. He's in Hebrew, and he's an Egyptian. So having been, having been educated as an Egyptian, <clears throat> he was able to deal with the Egyptians equally, one-on-one. Um, We we think of Jesus as a mediator like that, that he is God and man. So he's able to mediate successfully between God and man as as being equal to both. You know, just as a slight note, what's really interesting about Moses is his name, the word Moses, is one of the few words that is both a word in Egyptian and in Hebrew. Uh, You see the word in in a lot of the names of uh, the leaders of of Egypt, like Ramses is actually Ra Moses or Tutmos, Tutmosis. And uh, whenever she, the Egyptian, uh, whenever she says, "I'm going to name him Moses because I drew him out of the water," the idea of being out of you would you would name yourself uh, you would name yourself after your god. I'm out of Ra. I'm out of to uh, the different gods of Egypt. So what's really cool is when Moses shows up and and god, he says, "Well, God, who am I going to say sent me?" And God says, "Well, you're going to say I am sent me. So when he shows up, and says I am Moses. It's it's like a play on those names, you know. Uh, I am I am out of I am, but would even be a way of looking at that as he draws his name out there. So again, it's really, it's really remarkable, really cool how how everything fell into such a perfect place for Moses to be the man in the moment, and ironically, all of that was really foreshadowing to Christ. Um, and I just, uh, again, I, I, we ran our time and it's kind of my fault too, that uh, had a lot of neat things to think about there. And I just wanted to share
3: that.
0: That's, that is very interesting. Um, and, and I mean, if you consider that in the fact, and Mike points us out, points us out that it was even an Egyptian that named Moses, but yet we still see that ultimately the connection there. So, so kind of what you're what you're suggesting there is in, in the prophecy that Moses makes that would apply to Christ, and you you have to think about Deuteronomy um, as well, the prophecy recorded there um, about the one that would come later, like Moses. There would be several parallels, kind of between Moses and Christ, and um, it's, it's and especially that's, the, that's
4: part of the message of uh, yeah. I think it's Hebrews three where it kind of compares the two. And mm-hmm. says, you know, that Jesus is greater than Moses, but but with the underlying theme that we would understand that both Moses and Christ uh, mediated with God for a covenant. You know, yeah. that would be the the thinking.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, I'll tell you what. Let's do. Um, let's plan to continue this next Wednesday. And um, what what we have built up to now in this process is the the, the state of rebellion. And so far, we've seen a, an interesting phrase where he talks about the patriarchs being envious of of joseph and um where we're going to start next week in verse 37 we are looking directly at the rebellion of the children of israel um, as a matter of fact what we gave consideration to uh earlier here within our text the um as he, as he concludes them being in the wilderness for 40 years, then he will start in about their rebellion there at Mount Sinai when, or Mount, yeah, Mount Sinai, when the law was given to them and what was observed while Moses was up in the mountain. And so we're, we're really building up to the point that Stephen is trying to make because he's going to, he's going to end up basically accusing <laughs> the generation that killed Christ as being just like your forefathers, you too have rebelled and, you know, continue on with that. So before we begin, before we end any final thoughts or comments on what we've looked at today, I know it's pretty simple in the information, but yet it's, it is pretty, um is very impacting in the way that this is building. So let's start with you, Paul, any thoughts or go ahead. Well, I was one
1: about. who stated that it was a simple, uh, simple, straightforward lesson, but, uh, I think the comments that you made, John, have been helpful and uh, productive. So uh, I am I appreciate us taking uh, the necessary time to walk through this. All right. Um, thank
0: you, Paul. Brian, any thoughts?
4: I was just going to ask, did we bring in our chat comment um, for the question? I can't recall. I don't remember.
0: We did. Um, okay. Gregor talked about the education of Moses. And Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry.
4: Did and- I have nothing else to add there, John? Thank
0: okay. you. <laughs> He did make a point that we didn't talk much about how that later in life, Moses said that he himself had difficulty speaking kind of a contrast there. So Uh, Tom, any final thoughts?
2: Uh, No. uh, Thanks for the lesson. Uh, Next week uh, we're having our gospel meeting. uh, So I may have a guest with me. Uh, I'll I'll wait and see how that one works. But if you're, if you're in Southern California uh, next week, we have, we've invited Alan Duvall. preach a meeting for us and you can go to our website and get more details on that so or our facebook page
0: very good very good um and shelton
3: no i had a a great study
0: i appreciated it well you were very chatty thank you
3: (laughs) i uh i haven't spent much time in act seven in my life so i was uh more open ears and open mouth today
0: well that sometimes you have to be that way it's a good point (laughs) point. And um, and I think that's everybody. All right. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our study today. We will continue this next week, beginning with Acts chapter 7, verse 37. And that'll be at uh, next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time.
1: If you're in the Eastern Time Zone in the United States, that will be at noon. We'll start.
2: 9 a.m. Pacific Time.
0: 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at Live dot truthfactor.com. have a wonderful week.